0: Hello to our listeners and welcome back to the MDS podcast. Today we're speaking with Dr. Garcia Ruiz, who is an associate professor of neurology and the coordinator of the movement disorders unit at the Fundación Jimenez Diaz, Universidad Autónoma de Madrid. Today we will be speaking to him about his recent article in movement disorders clinical practice that discussed electroconvulsive therapy and movement disorders. Welcome to our program.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to share some minutes uh, with you.
0: Well, this is a very interesting topic that you chose to write about here. You start your paper by discussing the history behind electroconvulsive therapy in medicine. It really is remarkable to me that anyone would think to induce seizures in patients in order to help them with any disease, with psychiatric disease. Can you explain how this all came about?
1: Well yeah. the history behind um, electroconvulsive therapy or ECT for short is is really quite interesting as many other treatments and techniques in, in neurology ECT was discovered by chance by serendipity I would say and behind a very dubious and unverified hypothesis in fact this hypothesis this hypothesis uh, turned out to be false but anyway von Meduna working in Budapest in the 30s Suggested that uh, there was an inverse relationship between epilepsy and psychosis. And he thought, well, if this if this is true, then schizophrenia could be treated with a short of artificial epilepsy. Uh, And so uh, they began to use uh, some toxic, very toxic drugs such as Camphor and Cardiazol. And then Sackel in Vienna employed insulin coma. These methods were certainly dangerous, but effective, according to von and Sackel, in some patients with severe psychosis. And let's remember that uh, there was no effective treatment for depression or psychosis in those days. Finally, Serletti and Luciovini in Italy began to use electroshock for severe psychosis. So instead of drugs, they began to use uh, electroshock. This therapy was uh, adopted very soon over the world, and over time, the effectiveness of um, ECT has been established. However, ECT was partially partially abandoned after the introduction of uh, antipsychotics and antidepressants in the 50s and 60s. So the history is in some way parallel to what uh, happened with uh, functional surgery for movement disorders. They began uh, to be used in the, in the 50, in the thirties and forties, and also functional neurosurgery. I mean, thalamotomy and palidotomy also were abandoned after the introduction of effective anti Parkinsonian treatment. So it's an interesting history.
0: It sounds from the paper that the observation of incidental effect in patients with dual diagnoses is also how it came to be seen that potentially movement disorders patients were having effects from ECT. Can you fill us in on how that came about?
1: Yeah, yeah. With the process of time, ECT was employed also in Parkinsonian patients with severe depression, oscomorbidity. And the physicians in chairs found improvement, not only in depression, but also in some uh, motor aspects, such as uh, raising, raising uh, from the chair, turning in bed. So in bradykinesia, in motor aspects, in pure motor aspects of Parkinson's disease. There are anecdotic observations from the 70s, but also from the 60s and even from the 50s. Many observations, not only in Parkinson's disease, but also in Drug-induced Parkinson's disease in Huntington's disease in tardive uh, dyskinesia. In fact, Faber and Trouble published a very interesting, already classic paper in movement disorders in 91, summarizing the effect of ECT in uh, movement disorders. And they already suggested that ECT might play some role in Parkinson's disease. And they suggested that ACT might have direct anti-Parkinsonian effect independent of any antidepressant or antipsychotic effect. This is the, the summary, right?
0: Right. And unlike in the 30s and 40s, nowadays, we definitely rely on more controlled data sets to help us figure out if there is truly an effect or not. So can you tell us about What studies have been done to evaluate the effect of ECT on the motor manifestations of Parkinson's?
1: Yes, this is a very important point. Well, there are many anecdotic observations of small case series and anecdotic uh, patients, even from the 50s, as I said, but sadly, few papers with modern methodology. There is a single double-blind shunt control study in my knowledge, of ECT on 11 patients with advanced Parkinson's disease and motor fluctuations, published in, in the year 86 by Anderson and, and co-workers in Acta, Scandinavica. And they found improvement in on time after ECT, of course, compared to SHAMR. To arm. Well, uh, as I said, many, many anecdotic papers, but only one single double-blind, uh, SHAN control study, and regarding axial symptoms, which is a very important point, th- there are two small, two small pilot studies, but very interesting. I will I will comment briefly. Pinto and Valderiola and others carried out an open study using ECT on nine patients, on nine PD patients with refractory freezing of gait. Right, they measure carefully the ambulation with timed tests before and after ECT and they found significant improvement in freezing of gait, speci- specifically on freezing of gait, which is very interesting, right? And the second pilot study comes from Netherlands, very interesting paper, a small one, but very interesting. Clock and co-workers published in Parkinson related uh, two years ago, uh, a very interesting paper based on a single case, but very carefully studied. These patients had severe psychotic depression with suicide attempts. In addition, this patient had clear freezing of gait, very severe freezing of gait. So ECT was started and uh, they found improvement in depression. But in addition, they found that the freezing of weight was really, really uh, improved. There are several uh, video segments of these these patients uh, already available in this paper. So this case was very well evaluated. And again, we have several video segments available. So these are what we have uh, about uh, ECT on Parkinson's disease. Many anecdotal observations, but few, few solid facts.
0: I found the mention of freezing of gait in those couple of papers to be very interesting because, as you know, freezing of gait sometimes responds to levodopa therapy, but often not and doesn't often respond to DBS even and may get worse with DBS. And so it can be one of those frustrating symptoms with patients that we may not have a lot of tools in our toolbox for.
1: Yeah. That's true as, uh, as I said, there are two pilot studies focusing on 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 freezing of gait, uh, but uh, who knows uh, who knows uh, freezing of gait is uh, is really is really difficult to treat so so uh, perhaps uh, ECT could be another possibility provide we have some confirmation some real confirmation of this of this uh, therapy
0: I want to talk a little bit about The actual pathophysiology of this. And I'm sure that there have been a lot of things that people have postulated about how ECT may impact the brain in different ways. And you talk about some of those in your paper. Can you just speak to the proposed effects on dopamine specifically?
1: Yeah, well, the mechanism of ECT are really unknown. I mean, mechanisms in plural, because several mechanisms. Are necessary to explain different effects, such as antidepressant action or anti Parkinsonian effect or others' effect. ECT probably increases dopamine release according to experimental models in animals. Microdialysis studies show that ECT produces large increases of dopamine in rat striatum. In addition, ECT increases the level of homovanillic acid in CSF of uh, PD patients after ECT, according to FAL and others. But there are many other uh, possibilities, many other mechanisms, such as release of BDNF and GDNF. These mechanisms, by the way, might explain the ECT related gray matter increases, huh? observed in, in patients, for instance, in, in the press patients treated with ECT. And finally, but I I think important, a transitory hematoencephalic barrier opening can be another possibility. And this could explain why patients treated with ECT, Parkinsonian patients treated with ECT, improve in their uh, motor aspect. Perhaps medication can reach the brain easily in this way. But well, there are many, many, many mechanisms. But anyway, I, I must say that we don't know the mechanism of ECT, but also we don't know the mechanism of of other very well um, used tra- uh, techniques such as DBS or magnetic stimulation. We don't know the mechanism of these of these techniques as well. So we need what we need is a real proof of efficacy of ECT. That's what we need sooner or later.
0: So I'm going a little bit off the beaten path here, but I wanted to follow up on your comment about gray matter expansion in patients on ECT, because this is not something I was familiar with. Are these in patients chronically treated, that over time they have an increased gray matter density?
1: Yes, yes, it seems according to several papers. Yes, yes, in some patients uh, treated um, in some Depressive patients treated with ECT, it seems that uh, gray matter can increase a little bit, just like uh, lithium. Lithium also can increase uh, gray matter uh, in some patients treated with this uh, compound. So it's it's extraordinary. I I can't explain very well the mechanism.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. certainly speaks to how ECT may be affecting neuroplasticity. Where did your interest in ECT come from? Have you had your own experiences with ECT in movement disorders patients?
1: Well, I came across ECT by pure chance because I'm not expert on, on ECT. Uh, some of our, of our uh, Parkinsonian patients had very severe comorbid refractory depression. And they were sent to psychiatry. We have in, in, my, in my center a very uh, strong unit of, of ECT. This is very strange because ECT is not is, is not frequently used in, in general in Spain. But anyway, uh, these patients were treated with ECT and certainly they improved the depression, of course, but also their motor aspects, including bradykinesia, rigidity, and some of them uh, tremor. So I asked uh, some of my colleagues to to. To confirm the, this effect, uh, so um, my resident uh, studied this patient before and after uh, ECT, and, and certainly there was some some action. Not in all patients, in, in in some of them. This is the history. Again, we need we need a, a real confirmation of effectiveness of ECT.
0: Absolutely, and you talk about what you would like to see in terms of a controlled study and and some of the barriers to that in your paper. I would imagine that teasing apart any effect on mood from an effect on motor symptoms may be difficult in patients for whom mood very much affects their quality of life and ability to get about their day subjectively. And, And we know that mood also affects Motor symptoms, anxiety, increasing tremor, and all of those types of things. So that may be tough to tease out.
1: Yeah, yeah. For the moment, we have to, well, we, we can use this technique in in, in, in Parkinsonian patients with severe depression, cor ascorb- comorbidity and take advantage of, of this technique. But anyway, sooner or later, again, I, I believe we, we need a real confirmation of effectivity of ECT. Uh, I know it's difficult because uh, in this technique, the, the placebo effect is, is really is really strong. But if we manage to, to carry it out, in general, I mean effective Um, and very well planned studies with, for instance, levodopa, interal levodopa infusion or apomorphine infusion. Uh, We can do that the same thing with ECT. The problem is that ECT has no pressure. Well, we have no pressure for, for using ECT because ECT is very cheap. That's the problem. Uh, We should, we should try to, to confirm this, this technique because it's despite Its bad press is very well tolerated and perhaps really effective for some patients with refractory axial symptoms, as you said.
0: Are there any places that you know of in the world that currently use ECT non-experimentally for Parkinson's in the absence of psychiatric symptoms?
1: Not in my knowledge. Not in my knowledge, no.
0: And how do you see the potential for ECT in the future, do you see it being used for a specific Parkinson's population, such as medically refractory advanced or patients who have too many side effects of medications? Or do you think that its use could potentially be even broader for even mild patients?
1: Well, we don't know, but we must confirm. First, we must confirm that ECT is is effective in the average Patient with Parkinson's disease, and then try to test this technique in patients with axial symptoms, especially those patients with freezing of gait, because freezing of gait is the is the is the is the is the, is what we need, you know. We have a treatment effective treatment for every patient with Parkinson's disease, but not for this patient with severe axial symptoms.
0: That's absolutely true. That would be a game changer for a lot of patients. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything that you want to add to the conversation before we sign off?
1: No, but perhaps we should we should remember that we have been using very effective techniques such as DBS, such as uh, magnetic stimulation, and others without clear clear proof of effectiveness, so this is the case of ECT. We suspect that ECT is real; it's is, is a real treatment for 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 patients with Parkinson's disease. But we have to prove. We have to prove sooner or later. We have to to get the real the real proof, the real test.
0: Well, maybe one of our listeners will start a trial and. <laughs> We'll have some real proof in a few years here. Sure. (laughs) Thank you for your time.
1: Thanks. Thanks again.